everyone. Hi, hello. Welcome to a very exciting episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I am sitting here in my studio with host, comedian, writer, person who was on my show very early on, and now it's been way too long, Paul Gilmartin. Hello. Hello. It, exciting. Isn't that a little much to call this exciting? I'm excited. The episode with me. Okay. I'm excited. I'm excited too, but I'm, 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 you know, it's Reserved. all being filtered through so a tiny bit of self-loathing. So, I understand. Yeah. Well, it's good to know you haven't changed. <laughs> and it's so good to see you again. It was good to see ages you. ago and you were a great guest on my podcast. Thank you. The Mental Illness Happy Hour, which mm. when I first discovered podcasts, which was, you know, at this point a long time ago, but maybe later than some people, I remember when I was like in the process of uh, auditioning for the Adam Carolla show and I was listening to a lot of podcasts. Yours was what I listened to. I remember listening to you and Janet Varney and then I met you guys. Um, so, Paul, I was trying to remember you were on a live show that I did at Nerd Melt or Meltdown Comics. Yes. Um, and before that, <clears throat> excuse me, you were on an episode of my show when it was like being tested. Like, I don't even know if it was officially called Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Um, and then I was trying to remember if there was a time that you came. Do you, do you remember like coming and being a guest on Allison Rosen is your new best friend I in think studio? So. I think so. Okay. Were you recording those at Adams? I was. I think I did one there. Okay. But I think that might have been, you know, a quick Google search would have solved this. That's too easy. I think that might have been when it was being when it was like being tested out though mm. maybe not maybe we did too but anyway it's been forever 10 years probably longer because that was that would have been 2011 that's the year i started doing my podcast yeah. Yeah. 11 years and i think you were in the first year of my podcast oh you my were God. one of the first guests oh wow your episode might not even be available i think that because i have the first 90 episodes behind uh, a paywall actually not even behind a paywall i hold them back so that i can release a, a best of when i take a week off oh that's smart yeah that's really smart yeah. i just do an encore episode from a long time ago but it's like not even it's I mean, if you do, if you've been back. doing it for ten years and you do one from the first three years, chances are ninety percent of the people listening have not right. heard it or don't mind hearing it again because it's been so long. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and what I remember from one of our very early interviews is I. So this shows how early it was. I had surgery scheduled. Uh, and I know I had surgery at the end of 2011 for endometriosis, and I was really afraid of general anesthesia because I'd never had it. And you had had it like 17 times. Yeah. I'm exaggerating. No, it's 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 pretty close. I've had 14 surgeries. Oh, my God. And I just yes. remember being like, holy shit. And then I ended up doing IVF to have my kids who you met. Um, so I have now had it a number of times and realized like, oh, I really enjoy this. <laughs> I really like the Versed they give you. It makes you so calm beforehand. It's the first That time is I've, the best part. I've never felt so free of any kind of anxiety oh, yeah. I, is, I i often say the i it's almost worth the surgery and the physical therapy to 
experience that moment when they give you Valium and a nice nurse is putting a warm blanket on you and asking you in a soothing voice if she can get you anything. I want to live there. I know. I want to live there. Yes. And especially it is really the best. And especially as a sober person that you get what we call a freebie, you know, when they give you Valium. And so right. I always exaggerate a little bit. I'm a little nervous about yeah. this. Can you get give me something to relax right. me? I've definitely done the like, what number, like afterwards, mm-hmm. what number is your pain? Oh, six. No, it's like a three. Yeah. You got it. You know, the IV drugs are right there. You have an IV in. Right. Take people yes. are there to take care of you. Take advantage. Wait now, why fourteen? Uh, probably half of them are hockey uh, mm-hmm. related things, and then I had issues when I was a kid. When I was two weeks old, my my the uh, muscle at that between your stomach and your small intestine mm-hmm. was too small, and so I was projectile vomiting. So essentially, oh, I was starving the two yeah. first two weeks of, of my life, and then my testicles didn't descend when I was like. I don't know, whenever they're supposed to d- descend when you're uh, a, a boy, I think between like seven and 10, mine didn't. So I, I had to have these surgeries where to pull the testicle down, they essentially attached a bungee cord to oh, your no. testicle oh my God. and strapped it to your leg in a straight cast. So it's just pulling, it's pulling it and you're in bed for like, I don't know, seven days. Was that as excruciating as it sounds? It wasn't fun. <laughs> It wasn't fun. And then I've had three hernias. Um, you know, I got a plate in my left ankle. I've had three shoulder surgeries, a lot of, of wear and tear from from playing hockey. Right. But, but ever since I was a little kid, I've always just kind of surrendered to the process. Mm-hmm. So I don't get nervous mm-hmm. when I go to get surgery. In fact, there's a part of me that likes that I don't have to do anything. Yeah. I think that's where I've, it's been a long time since I've had it, yes. but that's kind of where I've arrived is like, I think I feel a little bit of nervousness leading up to it. But then once you're like in the bed, it's like, yes. yeah, you really, it's, it's the least responsible you have to be for anything. Yes. And people are caring for yeah, you. Yeah, you know? totally. And you can lie to yourself and say, they love me. It does feel like they do. Yes. Something about that drug and then someone like fussing around you. Mm-hmm. It's really womb-like. I, I have a super big soft spot in my heart for nurses that treat people like human beings, mm-hmm. um, which sounds ridiculous to no, say it out doesn't, loud. It doesn't sound ridiculous because I've had nurses who don't and it's yes. awful. It's awful because you're in one of the most vulnerable moments of your life. You yeah. don't know if you're going to be okay. Your brain may be telling you this is going to be a catastrophe or or whatever. And I had a nurse when I was I had that testicle surgery, and I was so ashamed because you know little kids are they're I mean adults too they're so worried that their bodies are different yeah. they're weird you know whatever, and she made me feel like the most special person in the world. She would make up these songs she you know with my name in them and she'd sing them to me. Oh, that's so sweet. And it ever since that day I have just always. Um, just felt like this bond with nurses when they're when yeah. they're nice and they're caring. And I have to say, ninety five percent of the ones I've had have been have been that way. That's and great. it's really yeah. Can we go back to this testicle surgery though yeah. for a moment? Just because sure. I'm trying to understand. So where is the bungee cord attached? To the bottom of the testicle. And I don't like on I, the inside of the scrotum though. Like I, inside it, your body. I guess it must have been because it wasn't pulling on the skin. So it had to have been sewn into mm. The testicle, right. I guess. 
I, I couldn't really see from yeah. my angle, from but it point. was a bungee cord. And I have to imagine that they do it differently today now. because this was in 1874. <laughs> right. And they, they had they just, horses pulling. That was what mm-hmm. was was giving attention. So they put like a, a piece of parchment in your mouth to bite down on for the pain. Exactly. And then a guy with little uh, wire spectacles uh, said, uh, storms are brewing. <laughs> um. Well, I had an impacted cuspid, which means one of my, you know, canine teeth was like up in the roof of my mouth. That had to hurt. Uh, no. It when they so it didn't it didn't hurt. Well, no, it's it just means it hadn't come it hadn't descended. Gotcha. Um, so they do a surgery where they go in and they attach a bracket to it, and then you have a little like chain that hangs down from the roof of your mouth and attaches. Then you get braces and attaches to that, and they pull on it. Like they pull it down, right. but every month when you get your braces tightened, they like pull this elastic thing and that's uncomfortable. So essentially, I had a very similar situation. Was your shape like a testicle? Because mine was shaped like a tooth. My <laughs> testicle looked like a molar. I Yes, it was. It yes. was shaped like full male anatomy just <laughs> hanging out up there. It was so weird when it came through. Okay, so fill me in on what's been going on since 2011. Oh my god. Well, I got Or just you yeah, the highlights. I got I got divorced in I'm still sober. Got got sober in 03, still sober. 20 years sober. Congrats. I started going to Actually, no, I would have been going to that support group when I No. Yes. Yes, I'd been going to that. I started going to a support group for uh kind of intimacy and trust mm-hmm. issues. Um in 09, but that's been the one that has been kind of uncovering the most, the deepest Mm -hmm. issues. And so that would probably be the thing that has progressed the most in terms of like growing and learning things about myself and um, just uh, dropping old coping mechanisms that weren't working and discovering new ones and being comfortable with intimacy. And sadly, I did get divorced in 2016. I mean, we've both grown apart. We're friendly today. But then I had to start dating again. In 2018, I started dating again. And it was so weird. Yeah. It was so weird because the last time I'd gone on a date was in 1987. Oh, my God. You had been with your wife since 87? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that was really weird. But that's also when I discovered that all the work I'd done and that support group was paying off because I would go on these dates. And even if I was kind of physically attracted to a woman, if there were red flags, like if she, I got a codependent vibe from mm-hmm. her or something, I would just, you know, no, no second date. And right. there were a couple of times where like I knew if I'd wanted to have sex, I could have. And what was new for me was I would fast forward, you know, I'd think, oh, yeah, physically that might be enjoyable. But then I would picture laying in bed with him mm. afterwards. And that was the part that made me go, I, I don't I don't really feel attracted to her personality. Mm-hmm. And that was mind blowing for me because I was a pig <laughs> for years. And it's something I carried a tremendous amount of shame with. And I still do mm-hmm. because I, I used women. I objectified them. You know, I, in my brain back, you know, and this was, you know, 20, 30 years ago, 
if you weren't physically restraining a woman, it wasn't a violation, which is sounds ridiculous now. I mean, it's really yes, it does, but it ha- all of that has changed so much. It has, it has. So um, by that, do you mean that you were pressuring manip- them? Yes, pressuring okay. them, um, be, like being be, man- like manipulating, or like what was your go-to manipulation? Um, try to to rationalize it's you know it's it's everybody does it Mm. you know you're you know don't be hung up on your you know religion or Mm. it it, it's um and i wouldn't it never occurred to me that they weren't just blatantly saying no because they wanted to be the nice girl they didn't want to hurt my feelings and it wasn't until i had gina grad on the episode and she shared about how how many times she just gave up because she was being worn down and mm. I felt my stomach drop mm. and I went, oh my God, I've been that guy mm. that you've experienced. And that was kind of the beginning, but I'd been in my support group for intimacy at th- for three years at that point. Mm. So I'm a very fucking slow <laughs> learner. Um, and, and I try to talk about, you know, part of my podcast is talking about really negative experiences, traumatic experiences that people have. And I've had them where I've been on the receiving end of sexual violations. Mm-hmm. And, and I always feel that it, it's only fair of me to share my history where I've been the person who pushed the boundaries mm-hmm. or, um, you know, was, was not a good dude. Right, right. I have to say, I think of you as such uh, an enlightened, nice guy that it's surprising to me to find out that you are a self-described pig. Do you get that a lot? People being surprised to hear this? Um, I do. I do. And and I take that as a compliment because I do think I've changed. But, you know, there's something hardwired in me. You know, I, th- I think when you and maybe this is just me making an excuse, but I a lot of people in my support group are this way as well. When you're raised in a sexually charged environment, if you've experienced um, sexual violations, no matter how overt or covert, that can become your drug, the thing that you use to soothe yourself mm-hmm. because you tend to, th- to feel like you are an object. And so right. I, since I was seven, I, I just remember like, pardon, pardon the bluntness, being obsessed with pussies, <laughs> you know, just like wanting to see girls naked. Mm. I think since seven. Wow. Since seven. I remember watching like a, a play was being rehearsed with classmates of mine. And I just remember thinking, I wonder what all those girls look like with their <laughs> skirts, with their skirts off. And, you know, kids will do the typical show, you mm. know, show me yours. I'll show you mine. But it seemed way more important to me. Mm-hmm. And so I always felt like a pervert. And I oh, didn't, wow. and I didn't know why. And and all of this is to say, there is still something wired in me that when things get really bad, and I'm not utilizing the tools I need mm-hmm. to, opening up to friends, making you know outreach phone calls, being of service, praying, meditating, all that mm-hmm. other stuff, I want to go to porn mm-hmm. or something where I can view women as objects. And get high and numb myself mm-hmm. from it. And I'm ashamed that occasionally I will slip and I will go to that place. So I think it's important to share that, 
you know, I feel like I'm 95% changed, mm-hmm. but there's still a little vestige. It's like there's an ember that never, yeah. for me, that never goes out and I have to make sure to not give it oxygen. Mm-hmm. I've certainly felt in my dating years, well, maybe I didn't feel it that much in my dating years. It was after looking back. I, I don't think I used sex per se as a drug, but I certainly used relationships and attention as validation. a drug. And I, yes. And I needed them to be sexually attracted to me for the validation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, re- I remember a moment I was drunk and I was sitting outside the apartment I lived in in New York on the phone talking to this guy I was dating. He lived in Brooklyn and I was trying to convince him to come over and spend the night at my place. And I was really pressuring him. Um, And he had work the next morning, like early. And I was like, but you can go from my house, you know, Mm -hmm. and, or my apartment. And I remember him saying, why are you trying to convince me to do something that's not good for me? And I feel bad about that. And I feel bad about all that. Like my, the coercion that I was doing, no, it wasn't like sexual coercion. I mean, it wasn't, um, in the bedroom predatory. Right. But it was not being respectful of people's boundaries because I was so selfish or I, I was just thinking about what, getting my needs met in the moment. And I was like a toddler in a crib, like pick me up, take care. I mean, I was coming from such a young place, but I'm kind of horrified at all those years and all that behavior. And in fact, um, I don't know, you probably can't say which group you're talking about, but it might be one that I have thought I should at some point drop in, (laughs) check out those steps. We'll talk afterwards. Yeah. 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 Um, and I don't say that uh, that that I won't say it because I'm ashamed. It's because I don't want to appear as a spokesperson right. for the group. Attraction, not promotion. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's yes. It's probably okay. So, so how then? I mean, I guess you kind of answered this by like the meditation, the prayer, all the things you do to sort of keep yourself sober, for for lack of a better word, or maybe that is the word. Um. How then, while you're dating and getting to know people, how do you deal with that ember? Um, well, for one, I don't look to them to fill something in me that I need to fill myself. So uh, that would be a sense of uh, a sense of self, which mm-hmm. has taken me years to to build. And I, you know, it, it will, I'm sure, be a lifelong process. But it's out of the you know, DEFCON 10 area to something that's right. where the, the the siren isn't flashing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in my relationship with my girlfriend. Oh, you uh, have a girlfriend. I do. I how, do. How long is that? Uh, five years. Oh. And um, if we broke up, I would be heartbroken, but I know I would be okay. Yeah. I would be okay by myself. And I think it was really important that I lived alone for a while after I got divorced, but it was painful and terrifying. Mm. And the place that I went to was Porn. seeking everything online. Well, you know, when you're married and you're not doing that stuff, mm. you kind of think, well, what's that like to be single and right. you know, do that cam thing and this thing <laughs> over there and hook up online with somebody. And it was all kind of, you know, online stuff, mm. but 
it was, there were some times when I was doing it and like, I wasn't really eating. I was, Mm. you know, I was doing it compulsively. I see. And I think I was lucky and that I, I was able to run the wheels off it Mm -hmm. and to realize I, I feel terrible Mm -hmm. inside. I feel empty and I feel like a pathetic little boy. Mm. You know, I really related when you talked about feeling like an infant. Yeah. And, um, and so I think the next phase, once I, I stopped doing that, um, I think I was able to get kind of my feet under me and have a clear enough head that when I did start dating, um, it was, um, it wasn't, I wasn't, a, a total mess. I mm-hmm. think it was a little bit of a mess. I think everyone yeah. coming out of divorce feels yeah. that way. But, you know, here here's the positive things. Uh, it used to be like when I would have a one night stand, it, it felt so good to leave the next day <gasps> because I didn't have to worry about her needs, things about her that were annoying. I didn't want any responsibility. You know, it wasn't until I began to learn how to set boundaries that I realized, oh, I had felt cornered my whole life because I was always giving somebody what they wanted or running. Mm-hmm. And mm. and there's a middle ground where I can say, well, let's talk about this mm-hmm. or I'm not comfortable with that or that doesn't feel okay yeah. to me. And when I began having those conversations, suddenly I'm like, I love being monogamous. I, I don't feel cornered. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to get out of bed as soon as we're done having sex. I want to sit there and I love that part afterwards. And it, oh, it feels cheesy to say that because 15 years ago, if I heard a dude say that, I'd be like, oh, you're just trying to sound good right. on the podcast. <laughs> you know what your virtue signaling. Mm-hmm. No, I really, I really do. Um, and that. I'm very proud and happy about that because I've put the work in to get to that place. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels good. I never imagined I would be somebody that in not tolerated monogamy, but really enjoyed it. So these conversations that you're talking about realizing you could have, like what does that look like? Or like what's an example of a kind of conversation like that? Because I'm relating intent. I remember at one point feeling like, it's inevitable that whatever someone asks me to do, not in a sexual setting, but right. just in like anything, like I just have to, I have to give it to them if they ask. And it's like, that's a powerless feeling. And it's not true. And, and it's, I mean, who wants to walk out their front door when you view the world that way? Yes. Because that, that was the pattern with my mom. Mm-hmm. I, she, I became her therapist at seven where she'd break down and cry about her marriage and how she wanted to leave us because we were all selfish. Oh, and, and I remember feeling like it's up to me to keep her happy. Oh my God. So I kind of, and there was lots of creepy shit besides mm, that, yeah. but I'm, um, it, it, um, are you the eldest? No. Um, my brother's okay. older than me. Uh, so I think. I believed, and my mother never said to me, you're the one that's going to keep me happy. Mm. I anointed myself mm. that. And I think, and there's a certain power of course. in that, you yeah, know, it can important. be in- intoxicating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm smart. I'm as smart as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, but until you retire mm. that role in your play, 
uh, you're going to keep doing it until it doesn't work. And it stopped working for me when I began to piece together, oh, I sexually act out or I play my video game compulsively when I'm feeling cornered Mm -hmm. in my life. So in what ways can I free myself up from being cornered? Well, by saying, uh, and this has happened very rarely, but happened a couple of times in my relationship with my girlfriend where I said, that hurt my feelings, the way you talked to me. I felt disrespected. I felt like you were telling me that I'm stupid. Mm. Uh, and I expressed them in terms of my feelings rather mm. than saying, you, why yes. are you being yeah. such a cunt or whatever? <laughs> and the great thing about when you do something like that, you express your feelings, is you give that other person an opportunity to reveal their character. Mm. And she revealed her character by taking responsibility for it, apologizing and adjusting her behavior. And I'd like to think that I've done the same mm. as well when she has said, you know, you're not really present when we're hanging out, you know, you're distracted Mm -hmm. and I'm just, you know, I might as well just go home right, right now. And, and I had said, I'm so sorry. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to do better. And I'd like to think that I, that Mm -hmm. I do. And it's a very free feeling being in a relationship that's clean. Yeah. Where there's nothing swept under the rug. And, you know, I was, I was saying to, to somebody the other day in my support group, if somebody asks you, how's your relationship, um, think about how comfortable would you be if your partner was alone with your phone? <laughs> I would be totally fine if my girlfriend was alone with my phone. Mm. And that feels good. Mm. You know, one of the things that I use to guide my behavior, and I don't even have to, to think about it, but previously, previously in my life, uh, it, I would have failed this test is don't act in a way around the person of the gender you're attracted to in a way that you wouldn't if your partner was standing mm. right there. And that to me answers, am I emotionally cheating or, right. you know, am I being faithful or not? Cause I used to be like, well, we're not full on fucking. So I saved that for, cause I was a terrible husband. Mm. I was a really shitty husband. And how many years were you married? Uh, well, we were together since 87. We're living together since 88. Uh, we got divorced in 2016 and we're married in 95. Okay. So, so a good you know, number but of together, years. you know, yeah. almost 29 years, something like that. Um, yeah, what a long of, time. What kind of bad husband were you? Uh, cheated. Mm. Uh, could be emotionally cold. Um, could be dishonest. Um, uh, yeah. Um, what critical. The, what the fuck, Paul? You're not critical. Who I I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah. And d- did you did you fess up about cheating? I did. How'd I did. that go? Not well. <laughs> um. Yeah, it really, really hurt her, mm. as I would imagine it would anybody who is invested and trusted uh, somebody. And, you know, it's, it's, I will feel bad about that until the day I die. But, mm. you know, one of my female friends in my support group said to me, the only thing you have control over is whether or not you change mm. and whether or not you are still that guy. Mm-hmm. And I have, female friends in my support group would tell me they feel safe with me. And, um, that means a lot. That means a lot to me. So I feel like I'm, I'm heading in the, in the right direction. 
did this go on the whole time? On and off. Mm-hmm. When the first six years of my sobriety from drugs and alcohol, it was not an issue. And then the desire to cheat started creeping back in and it scared the fuck out of me. So I started going to this poor group mm-hmm. that I mentioned about right. intimacy and stuff like that. Um, but within that, I began as I withdrew from the high of pornography and other non-cheating because mm-hmm. I think she knew that I know she knew that I would look at a pornography occasionally as I withdrew from that um, all the feelings I'd buried as a kid mm-hmm. and this is textbook for that you know program is right. this this is what happens all the feelings and they they may not necessarily be new memories but because you're not overstimulated by acting mm-hmm. out you feel them differently and I suddenly felt all the truths that I had buried as a kid. And it was the most painful thing that I've ever experienced. And I broke down and I just started sobbing. And, and my wife said, I've been waiting 20 years for you to do this. She could see this in me that, you know, very early on, that was the beginning. And then when you say all the truths, are you talking about realizations about your family? About about my mom mm-hmm. and just the way she touched me, looked at me, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I could go into all kinds of gory details, but I think you probably probably get the picture. And there were many great things about my mom, you know. She stood up when when people would say racist things in our neighborhood, she would stand up and say, you know, that's wrong. So it was it was she was a, is a very complicated, complicated yeah. woman. Um, but that was, as I began to process that and all that pain came up, I resorted to the old mechanisms and, um, you know, I wasn't going out and having one night stands because I wasn't going on the road, but, you know, I would go to get a, a massage hoping that it was, you know, the one with the happy ending. (laughs) And I would kid myself and say, well, I didn't know Mm -hmm. it was that right and honestly there was more of a high of going into a place where i didn't know if it was going to happen or not going to one where you know it's going to happen for i think for an addict it takes because part of the high is the searching for whatever Mm -hmm. it is and i think people that watch porn know what that is it's you're looking for the perfect clip Mm, for right you know two and a half hours or eight hours mm-hmm. or whatever yeah. it is with that person. It's the high of the anticipation. Right. You know, the moment itself is usually almost a letdown. It's the uh, fantasy. What, it, what, like what percentage of massages happen to include that? It's making me realize I'm naive about massages. Um, well, in Los Angeles, my guess would be probably half are legitimate, half are, are not. Well, I had no idea. Yeah. It's that frequent. But it also was like an urban legend. Well, you know, if you go to Ventura Boulevard, it's probably going to be 75% legitimate. Mm -hmm. You know, the further north you go into poorer neighborhoods, it's going to be probably 75% the other way. Mm -hmm. And do they like, I'm sorry, I know this is not, I don't want to be prurient, but like, do they try to assess whether that's what you're there for? I don't know if I know what's going on in their mind, but you usually know within the first minute Mm. um, because generally the kind of the more sexual it is, the worse the massage is. I see. And so if they they start off and it's like, wow, this person has never been to massage school, (laughs) you know that it's one of those places. Right. 
And would you say, I know you, you don't work there, but like most people going there, is that why they're going there? This if, is eye-opening to yes, me. Yes, yes. And I don't mind answering okay. all of okay, great. all of these questions. There's nothing, I'm an open, yeah. open book. Um, I think the majority of people, you may stumble into one once where you're surprised by that, mm-hmm. but the vibe you get when you're in there, um, you'll recognize that in the next place that you go to that has that vibe. And it's uh, the vi- and what is the vibe? The way the massage therapists dress, um, the are they dressed in a scantily clad way? Well, if it's a legitimate place, um, they'll they'll be dressed in a, in a way almost like you would if you were at physical therapy, right? Um, if it's not like if you go in and they're wearing a short skirt, it's not a legitimate yeah. place. Um, a lot of the the non legitimate places, um, uh. English isn't their first language. Mm-hmm. Um, and that brings up a whole nother layer of shame that I feel, you know, as I look back, I'm like, some of these women might have been trafficked. Right. Right. So you said that when you started dating, um, you might be attracted to the woman, but if you uh, you know, got re- if you saw red flags, like if she seemed codependent on the first date or whatever, there wasn't a second date. And I just imagine listeners who might be single listening, being like, what is it that indicates that someone is coded? Like what, how can you, what kind of codependent, codependent vibe might you have been getting on those first dates? Well, the worst one that I got that I almost just ran out of the coffee date and these were all dates during the day which was another thing that was important Mm -hmm. to me is to just eliminate any kind of um that thing and go and to go slowly um this woman talked she was divorced and she said well i don't necessarily need a man because i've got my son he's my little man and Mm. i just remember like, That's, oh my God, yeah. that is just like my mom. And it just turned my stomach and I felt so bad for that kid. Yeah. And I kind of, yeah, I was angry at her inside, but also kind of felt sorry for her because it's like she, she I don't think she knows how much she's fucking right. her son up. Yeah. You know, and that that is your child is not there to meet your emotional needs. You know, yeah. there there are things that you can feel fulfilled by mm-hmm. being a parent. Um, and this is just me guessing because yeah. I'm not a parent, but I know for sure looking to your child to for validation yeah. and asking them, come give mommy a hug, mommy's sad, not cool. No. Not cool. Yeah. I mean, I can see where that's like, that's like the reddest of flags for, for you. Yes. For me. Yeah. For me. And somebody else may be okay with that. So right. I'm just going to speak about what works for way. me. And yeah. there was another woman who I was really physically attracted to. But as she was describing the relationship she'd been into, one was with like an abusive alcoholic that she still, um, uh, I don't know, she clung on to it for years and did not really seem, from what I gathered from my conversation with her, that she had gained any insight mm. about her part in, continu- in contributing to that dynamic by enabling him. Right. And she certainly didn't cause his drinking but she didn't give him any consequences mm-hmm. and i i would like a partner that doesn't take 
shit mm -hmm. from somebody yeah. that that isn't a doormat. Not that I'm looking to step on them, right? But what I find is when someone is a doormat in certain areas of their life, they take it out on the people they love, or they dump on the people they love. And my girlfriend yeah. started doing that mm. because she was being manipulated by an untreated alcoholic that worked for her and she just kept giving him chance after chance after chance and then she would bitch to me on the phone about him and mm -hmm. i eventually said I, I i can't do this these conversations anymore mm -hmm. you have the power you hold the key to getting out of this prison you are not locked in it and you're free to choose whatever you want but i can no longer enable you by listening to you play victim right. in this. So you felt that by, because she was like taking all the, the negative feelings she had about that and then had a place to put them, that was prolonging her coming to the realization. Exactly. Yeah. And dumping. Right. When on we would you, talk on yeah. the phone, she would bitch for <laughs> 20 minutes straight mm -hmm. uh, ab about this. Yeah. And, and she's not that person mm -hmm. anymore. And sometimes, you know, maybe she has an employee that, that she's enabling. I'll say, baby, can I, can I give you some, some truth here? Mm -hmm. And I try to do it in a, in a loving mm -hmm. way. And, and she's open to That's that. That's great. Yeah. That's yeah. Great. And that feels good because then I don't have resentment. Yeah. You know, resentment is the fucking intimacy killer. Mm -hmm. It is the intimacy killer. I know. I know. And I can't imagine how much having kids complicates things because. I mean, this is my first relationship where, and Daniel and I have now been together for what, 12 years, um, married for nine. This is the first relationship I've been in where I can actually, where we have healthy communication, where we can talk about something to the point where like I really feel like I've unburdened my soul, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not because well, I'll finish that thought and then I'll go back to what I was gonna say. Like, it, yeah, it's the first one where I can really just put it all out there. He puts it all out there and we are closer afterwards and feel good. I had never experienced that. I grew up in a house where if you tried to tell someone how you felt in relation to them, then you would get in trouble. You were bad. You that was a character attack. You should have known not to say that. Um, it was weaponized. Feelings yeah, were weaponized. Totally. It yes. was very confusing. Very confusing, yes. and it just taught me that c communication is futile. Um, and then in any relationship I had prior to Daniel, I was so afraid to be too much, to be wrong, to be unreasonable to not be considering where they're just, it was so loaded that when I would try to talk about anything, it was like, I have, it was like, I was, I was holding a balloon full of feelings and I was just like, beep, and I let, you know, like let out like 10% <laughs> so, of such them. such a great metaphor. And so I never had the feeling of like emptying the balloon, you know, because I never did. It was always like a, re it was a rehearsed statement and God forbid I ever, and it never, I never felt better afterwards. I was like, I guess I just take this bucket of shit and go deal with it on my own. Um, so yeah, having, there's definite, definitely resentments that creep in with kids because it becomes a lot of, a lot of just scheduling and whose turn is it and all that. But, um, 
but it's good. We get, we we communicate well, I think. So And your kids are fucking adorable, Thank by you. the way. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so you were talking about the urge to cheat had kind of gone away and then it came back. Mm-hmm. Um as relating to sort of where you were in in um you know internally like what what triggers or triggered the urge to cheat pain yeah I so wanting pain. an escape yeah wanting to escape and um it i had to survive i had created an idealized version of my mom that didn't exist in reality. Mm-hmm. And when I stopped acting out and began to feel my feelings, began to t- pay attention to my body and go, oh, my skin crawls when I hug her. I feel, you know, leaving her apartment, I feel like it feels like shooting heroin. Mm-hmm. I feel such relief. And I started to say, what if there's something underneath that and I'm not just a bad, selfish son? <laughs> And as I began to give weight to that, all these pieces began to fit into place and kind of, you know, if it were a puzzle, the puzzle said, you are an object. Mm. And when the truth of that hit me, um, I felt like an astronaut whose line had been cut out in space. I didn't know, like when you were talking about, you didn't know as you were trying to let the feelings out, am I being selfish right am i right to to say i didn't know where any truth was mm-hmm. and I, I as corny as it sounds i wanted a mommy no that doesn't sound corny and there was this also because either i'm wired that way or my brain works that way that i also want to sexualize it so it's like this is probably way too much information no but i suddenly began to have fantasies of <laughs> Like a mom figure taking care of me, getting me off, and then holding me while I cry afterwards. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. Yeah. It's so I love how honest that is. And I don't I actually don't think it's that rare. I probably don't. I don't really I don't think, think it, it I don't think it is. Um and that went away mm-hmm. after I processed this right. stuff. And I had incense fantasies about my mom. You know, there would be uh, times that I'd, I'd almost be laughing like I can't believe I'm about to jerk off thinking about tricking my mom into giving me a hand job, you know, and I'd be like, that's where I'm at. Mm-hmm. You're okay, buddy. That's radical self-acceptance. It was. Yeah. It was. And that I learned was also part of the being comfortable with intimacy. It's really hard to be intimate with someone when you fucking hate and judge every part of yourself. Yeah. And I had an epiphany in my support groups once where I realized it's important to have compassion for others, but not at the expense of compassion for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, oh, yeah. If we talked to somebody else, the way we talk to ourselves, they would get a restraining order on us. But for some reason, we tell ourselves, I'm disciplining myself. Mm-hmm. No, you're not. Nobody's ever shamed themselves into being the person they right. want to be. Yes. So those epiphanies helped me go, dude, you're not dirty. You're a wounded person mm-hmm. who is trying to heal. And that's how I look at it mm-hmm. today. And that's one of the reasons I actually enjoy saying these things that I would have been horrified to say earlier because i think it can probably help someone who's who's listening for sure yeah 
And I like talking about myself. (laughs) We all do. Yes. Uh, Speaking of mental illness happy hour, you've been doing that for 10 years. 12. 12, sorry. I I demoted you. God damn you. What the fuck? I'm not a 2013 person. No, that's right. Class of 2011. 2011. Um, Before the show started, you know, I said, how's it going? And I said, I'm going to ask you on air as well. But um, tell me more about how it's going. Because I know... As someone who's been doing my show for a long time, it um, it's like it's like a lifeline, mm. but at the same time, it's there's certain challenges that you hit, you know, in your twelfth year, let's say, or whatever. Yeah. yeah so how's it all going? I, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions in a row, and then I'm going to let you speak. What a weird way to interview someone. I guess I'm also wondering, um, have you noticed that the kinds of issues people are presenting with have changed over the years? Yes. Yes. Um, I just started going. We just did episode 666. Ooh, fun. And so for it, I thought, you know, half the show is an interview. The other half is me reading anonymous surveys that mm-hmm. have been filled online by listeners, and they share some really dark shit. And a lot of times I will go, that one's too dark mm. to read. And so I thought for 666, I'm going to read all those episodes. Oh, that's so smart. There's going to be nothing positive in it. This is going to be a bar, bar of dark chocolate. <laughs> no theme music, nothing. And I'm just going to plow through these darkest of dark surveys. Uh-huh. And and so I did that. But you know, doing the, the podcast for the 12 years, I have read and heard a lot of really, really dark shit. And I think sometimes that can weigh on me. It's one of the reasons why I um, typically, if I'm having an author on, I don't read their book Mm -hmm. because I only have so much bandwidth. Even if their book isn't dark, it's still in the mental illness realm. I may spot read or something, but uh, and I feel kind of bad and lazy about that. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I learned in my support group Listen to your battery. Yeah. If your battery's getting drained, respect it. Like if you read their book, you feel like you're just holding too much dark shit. Yeah. And even if their book isn't dark shit, it's just more about the subject of mental right. illness, addiction, trauma, what, whatever. Mm-hmm. Sitting across the table from them is completely different because there's a human being there and it's a conversation. Right. And that actually energizes me. So I don't know why those two things are are different, but I have found a really weird thing that happens, which is at the beginning, not even at the beginning, up until like a year ago, I'd say I always read the book. I felt it was my duty. Um, so that when they show up, uh, look how much research I've done. I've done my, I'm a good girl. I'm a good interviewer. (laughs) I'm a good podcaster. I love that you said that. Yeah. Uh, but it began to, get in the way of my curiosity because I'd sit there and I, any question I thought to ask, I already know the answer because I just read your book and I probably finished it this morning. Like if I put some time between reading their book and them coming on, that helped. But, and then because I can't be inauthentic or I like, I can't, it feels dishonest to ask a question when I already know the answer. I'd be doing this shit. Like, I mean, I know in your book you talk about that, but talk about it for the listeners. And it just like, all of a sudden, and you felt like a know-it-all. Yeah, I, yeah, it just it became um, clumsy. Yes, that's a so great word for it. I, I remember I had Dave Holmes on a number of years ago, and he sent me an excerpt, 
And I was like, oh, this is like the perfect amount of their Perfect book. amount. Yeah. Um, but I do find that if I don't know the answer to all this stuff, it's actually easier for me. So I'm, I've been I'm released. Glad, I'm glad to hear you yeah. say that. Because I've been released from the duty to read the book. Yeah. That makes that makes sense to me. And now yeah. I don't feel like a, no. a lazy piece of shit. No, you're actually four being a journalist. Minutes, four or five minutes. Yeah. By the time I get to my car, I will again be a lazy piece of shit. <laughs> um, okay. So, yeah. So, but you said that you have noticed that, well, no, no, no. Tell me about the dark stuff. Like what kind of dark stuff was it? <sighs> the very first one I remember reading, th th there's one survey called Awfulsome Moment. It's a mm -hmm. term we dubbed for something that was awful when it happened, but there's also something awesome mm -hmm. in it and not like it was positive, but like so fucked up you laugh about it mm -hmm. or something genuinely beautiful came out of it and they fill out whether or not it's awful some i don't categorize it right for, for those so it's not me going oh my god this is hilarious mm -hmm. but if they decide to say in hindsight this is hilarious this woman shared i think this was like the fifth awful some moment i've read and i, I would say there's probably been four thousand of yeah. them filled out now <laughs> right but this is one of the first ones i read she said the man who molested me when I was a child had hook for hands, <laughs> had hooks for hands. Oh my God. That's amazing. So, and on episode 666, mm -hmm. that was, there was probably, I, I did them from light to dark uh -huh. from beginning to, that one was probably towards the front or the middle. Oh, so that got so, just way worse. Uh, way worse. Yeah, yeah. The last couple of ones are like, oh my God, human beings are terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, but it was it, it felt good to kind of go, just so you know, this is what this job involves. You know, <laughs> right. it's one of the reasons I I love therapists, because they I only have to do this one day a week. Mm. They've got to do it five yeah. fucking days a week. Yeah. And I'm not comparing myself to a therapist. I just mean taking in right. somebody sharing yeah. their their trauma. I'm right. a cheerleader for the therapists and the professionals. Yeah. yeah. I think about that often. I think because my my alternate direction, I sometimes think, should I have gone that way? Um, was you know, should I have become a therapist? And then I think, but I know, and I am sure they're trained in this. But I know it would be hard for me to be like, well, we have to end for today. But you know, that whole thing, and like to not actually, my therapist will sometimes say like. I thought about you over the weekend. Mm -hmm. Thought about, and I'm like, yes, it's such a good feeling. It's a good feeling, right? Yeah, it's a really good feeling. Yeah, you want to be their favorite with the, <laughs> with the most insight. I was doing the work. Um, I didn't but, let them down. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think it'd be really hard to have boundaries with a therapist, but so necessary. Leaving a therapist was one of the healthiest most proud things I've ever done. Yeah, I would like to have done it in person. I did it over a voicemail. But Hey, you could have done it on text or something. I could have done it on text. Yeah, but I yeah. was very proud of myself because I just it just wasn't working for me. She would forget what we had talked about. Mm -hmm. She allowed her dogs in the session without even asking me and yeah. they would, you know, I'd be in the middle of revealing something really fucking intense and heavy and the dog would, you know, be nuzzling me. Right. And I, I was just like I just 
Did this isn't right. for me. Yeah. She's not terrible, mm-hmm. but it's just not for me. And so I felt really good. And any therapist that tries to fight you leaving them is a terrible therapist. Right. Did she fight you? No. Okay, good. No. I have also uh I had to I had to end it with a therapist who I'd only gone to a handful of times and it felt like an ill fit from the, the whole time, but I was really afraid of what her reaction was going to be. And that's my own shit. But well, it was also her. I mean, obviously I didn't trust her, you know, but she was actually very cool and she was like, "I understand and if you ever want to talk about it, let me know." And I was like, "Thankful." Have you ever developed feelings for a therapist? No, because I have only had female therapists mm-hmm. except for I there's a psychiatrist that I see I mean, however often you see someone for med management. So mm-hmm. at this point like once I mean, and that's not I really intimate. Right. Um, and he's not my type, but I know, well, I don't know now, but I mean, my pattern was always to be like, I had a crush on my driving teacher, (laughs) Andy, we drove around just him and me. We made jokes. We had repartee. I had it so bad for Andy, the driving teacher that then when I like graduated the driving school, um, I got in a, I didn't get in a car accident because of him, but I did get in a car accident. It was minor, but still not what you want shortly after you turn 16. Because you were dreaming about Andy. Yeah. Well, no. So then I like wrote a letter about it and I gave it to my friend who was, you know, going to that school. And I'm like, could you give this to him? Like, what the hell was I doing? How old was he? I think he was in his early 20s, maybe. And I was, you know, 16, which was also. So anyway. I always developed feelings for men in positions of power who were older. Yeah. Like professors and anyone, you know. Um, And I always think that would be, it would be bad if I had a even remotely attractive male therapist. Have you had Mm -hmm. feelings for female therapists? I have, but that that has gone away. Mm -hmm. That that went away after I started to process that stuff in 2012, 2013. Yeah. In fact, the last time I remember it being really strong where was in the middle of processing all that shit. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went to see a woman who was actually just still working on her hours, but she was awesome. She was Mm -hmm. really compassionate and she paid me a compliment. And I just remember I felt like I was I felt so sexually charged. I felt like I was crawling out of my skin. And so we explored that's good that's i was gonna ask did you talk about it and that's why i shared it Mm -hmm. with her because i said this is not me trying to hit on you i feel like this is so good something that is probably valuable for us to explore right now i feel like i want to tear all my fucking clothes off and i'm so uncomfortable and one of the things we what was the compliment she gave you I don't even remember. It wasn't like, oh, you know, you look good in that shirt. Right. It was like, you know, good you put work. a lot of effort yeah. into this. You should be really proud of yourself. And I and we kind of noticed that one of the ways that my mom would gaslight me is she would lavish compliments on me, very kind of possessive and mm-hmm. fantasizing. And then she would put the, the knife in. Like she mm-hmm. would say, you know, Butter, your, yeah. your mom's cutest sweetest you know etc etc and she would squeeze my face and then she'd say but you're rotten to the core oh my god and so and i would just shut down and so 
that was kind of the thing that I think we connected to was it didn't f- feel safe mm-hmm. if somebody was complimenting me because when is the other shoe right. going to drop? And what I don't know whether that was true or not, but it by the time we got to that, that mm-hmm. feeling had gone. Mm-hmm. That's know? amazing. Oh, my God. So your mom said that kind of stuff to you? Yeah. So she has does does your mom have mental illness i believe she does Mm. i believe she does yeah yeah and she had a horrible 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 childhood yeah and i and i have compassion for her but i can't have a relationship with so are you no contact with her? no contact it's been that way since i don't know maybe 2013 and it's not because of what she did it's because she won't respect the boundaries i ask Mm. her to respect have you uh talked to her about your feelings about your childhood, stuff like that. She heard through a friend that I had been talking about it on the podcast. Mm. And I, two reasons that I had never confronted her personally about it. One, I knew that she would deny it and it would just hurt me. Mm. Uh, And two, I was afraid. I'm afraid. Even today, I'm afraid to fly back to Chicago Mm. and have a conversation with her. She's 95 years old and I'm still afraid of her. Mm. Afraid of the confrontation. Yeah. Afraid of just the thing. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of embarrassing. I'm a guy that plays hockey and I, I get in hockey fights right. and I you got a and plate I in your check foot. guys yeah. and and I'm afraid I'm still afraid of my mom, not that she's physically gonna hurt me, but afraid of the dynamic yeah. of a sick person that's that unsafe. That's, I don't think that that's yeah. uh I think I mean I understand the feeling, yeah, but I don't yeah. think you need to. You should feel. I but I do I have it. I do I have it. love for her, mm. and I do sometimes question the fact that I've been public about what happened to me, mm. and I feel like a bit of an attention whore for sharing it. But I also know it had helped me grow to claim my story. Yeah. Um, and, and it helps other people too. And, I, and it has. It has. Yeah. So many people have written into me and said. You know, my mom used to walk around nude and she would come in the bathroom while I was showering and, you know, check how my penis was growing and, you know, uh, all, and women as well, yeah. things happening to them yeah. from mothers and fathers. And I never thought that that was abuse. Right. And there's, if anybody listening um, feels like, oh God, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Um read a book called Silently Seduced. Mm. Um, And it's about the parent-child relationship and boundaries and a thing called covert incest, which is they're not touching your genitals, but there is a sexually charged environment that feels really unsafe and Mm. as if you don't have autonomy over your own body. Yeah. Because that's there's a lot of people who who have experienced the, yeah, the book is si- called silently seduced by Dr. Kenneth Adams. And it, that book changed my life. Um, you know, what I was going to say is that in asking, have you tried to talk to her about this stuff? The reason I ask is because I know that there is often the fantasy that if you just, th- that, that they could somehow understand what they did and their, the pain. I don't believe these conversations ever actually work. If anyone listening has had one of these conversations and it's worked, let me know. But I believe yeah. generally no, because the person who could have done all that stuff, been that way, 
is not able to receive unless they've done like a shit shit load of work and have to have the willingness. Right. And, you know, her track record is not a tremendous amount of willingness to follow through Mm -hmm. on the really deep confrontations of her, her actions. Right. Um, and you know, one, one of the things that led to me realizing that I just couldn't have a relationship with her was, we were having a disagreement about something and, you know, pe- people who tend to be narcissistic have a really hard time allowing someone else to have a differing opinion from them. And they will hammer away to try to get you to change your mind, mm-hmm. you know, even if you don't need to agree, right. you know, f- right. on something logistically. It, it, no, they just, it's like it, it, it hurts them that right. someone else doesn't agree right. with them. And so I just said, mom, can we agree to disagree? I don't want to continue this discussion. And she was quiet for about 30 seconds. And then she was like, let's read some spiritual literature together. And I was still fuming. Yeah. And I said, mom, I know you want to be closer to me, but sometimes I don't feel safe around you. And she it was like she looked through me like I was a window mm. and like this glaze came over her eyes and she didn't ask anything. Right. There was no comment on about it. And then she started talking about something else. And I, and uh, I thought to myself, uh, I thought to myself, there's something wrong mm-hmm. with her. And I don't think she's a bad person. I don't know. Maybe there's a multiple personality Broken. thing or, or she dissociates and goes yeah. into someplace else. Um, but I can't be around it. And the thought of confronting her about the stuff that happened, it it just, I just can't imagine anything good would come out of it. I think I I would just be, I would get angry again. And I don't feel angry now Mm because I'm not cornered. Right. I'm not cornered. Right. And a tip I have for people who feel cornered in relationships with anybody, whether it's a friend who can be kind of draining or whatever, Return their phone call on your way to an appointment that is five minutes away. Oh, that's good. I'm a, I'm notorious for not answering my phone. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, 98% of calls I get are spam. But I get a lot of calls from people that like I like and I would answer. But it's like I'm about to record in 15 minutes or I'm in the middle of getting ready to do this or that or whatever. Or like... I have been going all day and now I'm just relaxing. But I always think... I don't think anything's wrong with that. I think that's healthy. Do you call them back though? Eventually, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But, well, well, thank you. But yeah, maybe, I mean, this. I don't think this is like pathological or toxic. But at the same time, why am I afraid to answer and say, hey, I'm in the middle of this. Um, can I call you back? They're adults. They can handle you not picking the phone up. That's true. If it was your child and school oh. was calling and oh you God. were like, I oh, I have to finish uh, the Housewives of Beverly Hills. Yeah. I don't know. Is that even still a show? It is. Um, that would be different. Yeah. No. I think okay. that I think you're protecting your I, battery. I feel avoidant that. when I do that. I, I would say avoidant. if you never called them back and never addressed why you're not calling them back, mm. that would be avoidant. Another tip I have for people is if there is somebody in your life who goes on monologues, will talk 20 minutes without taking a breath, and it doesn't feel like a conversation, here's something I, I've ha- had to say twice to people, and they were from my support groups. I care about you. 
and this is hard to say, but I figured you would want to know, but I feel like an audience member mm. when we talk on the phone and I don't want to feel that way. And, um, and I find, I find myself getting resentful when I feel like that and I don't want to feel that way. And I figured you would want to know, and yeah. it doesn't mean that I don't care about you because I do. How did those conversations, how were they One received? person never called me again and the other person I still talk to. Mm. And he's pretty good yeah. about it every once in a while, but not as bad as it used to because he went 40 minutes without me getting in, in a word edgewise. That's ex I, just, I feel exhausted. Exhausted. And I don't tolerate that yeah. in my life anymore. You know, it's different if a friend of mine is in crisis. Yeah. You know, but. Well. Yeah. Now, part of why I feel exhausted in those situations is because I feel like I need to be actively listening and I need to, you know, be almost a like surrogate therapist. And do you have that as well? Like, is that? I used to. Okay. I don't feel that one anymore. And I generally will ask that person if they would like feedback. That's good. Or not rather than just giving my opinion. Sometimes I'll just give my opinion, but I try to be aware mm -hmm. of of that. And I also don't tolerate people who keep complaining about the same thing, but aren't doing anything yeah. to try to fix it. And so I've had to set boundaries and say, I can't talk about this with you anymore because I just don't have the bandwidth. Mm -hmm. I love you, but this is not on the table for us. And how have those conversations gone? Um, well, one guy was actively using meth. Oh. And, and I said, you know, for one, I can't talk to you when you're high. Uh, two, um, I can't listen to you um, complain about – I didn't even remember what he was complaining about. Uh, meth quality I think, these days? Yes. I think it was com just bitching about other – people and he wasn't doing anything about his addiction mm -hmm. and they're very related you know yeah being in the middle of addiction and being resentful at the world go kind of go hand in <laughs> hand right and i said i'm here if you would like any kind of help if you want me to pick you up and you know go to a meeting or you know you maybe want some insights on what you can do to to try to get sober but i can't listen to you complain about your life when you're not doing anything mm -hmm. to change. You're not putting the effort in yeah. and it's just draining me. Oh, and the other thing was his, he and his brother uh, have this toxic relationship and it's always the same conversation. And I said, I can't, I'm, I'm done with that. I love you. We can talk about something else, but I, I just get resentful because it's the same story over and over again. What I really like about your examples of setting boundaries is that they are with the idea of trying to preserve the closeness with the person and preserve mm -hmm. the relationship. And like, you're not saying like goodbye forever and hanging up. Right. Cause I think my exposure to a lot of discussion about, well, aside from my own therapy is, you know, the discussion of boundaries and the discussion of people pleasing on social media, which oftentimes involves, a, you know, there's one account that I like that is like, you know, we'll spend some time reminding people that uh, someone now I'm now I'm like, my brain just turned to silt. So I'm having trouble articulating what it is that she says, but it's like, 
pushing against the idea that if someone doesn't do exactly what you want, you have to go no contact with them. Right. Like people are, you know, people are messy and they're allowed to not do what you want and not be there when you need them and all these things. Um, because I think there is a big rush to uh, cancel. Yeah. Like I l- listen, my boundary is I need this to be exactly how I want it to be. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's much more nuanced. Yes. And nuance is so hard. It's so funny because I was just talking to somebody today and we were talking about, you know, some of the biggest challenges in life is finding a nuanced way yeah. to do something that that isn't black and white and that if there's an art to it. Mm. And it's know, uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And a lot of us grew up with a role in a play <laughs> where we knew the script and then we realized that play is not serving me anymore. Or that role is not serving me anymore. And so you change the script and everybody else in the play is like, what are you doing? Right. Why? What? Yeah. You know, you're betraying us. Mm-hmm. And you're like, no, I'm, I'm fucking, I can't do this anymore. But discovering the, the, pardon the, the analogy that's going on forever it is difficult in the beginning to find lines to a a new play how Mm -hmm. do you have for instance here's here is how fucked of of a people pleaser i used to be what a little boy i used to be and this was before i got sober this is probably the late 90s when cds were were still popular and uh, there were workmen in my house and they were putting a floor in and I came around the corner and this guy was going through my CD collection, putting CDs into his bag. Wow. And I was so embarrassed for him. I didn't, I pretended I didn't see him because I was so afraid of confrontation yeah. and embarrassing him in front of his workers. That's how little I cared about myself. And I remember in that moment thinking, you fucking baby, yeah. what is the matter with you? But I didn't have the words right. to stand up for myself because I'd never really st- stood up for mm-hmm. myself. What I would do is I would go get drunk, high, or act out. Yeah, so you don't have to deal with it. So what ended up happening? Did he just take your CDs and come he back? He just took my CDs. And, you, and he and came I back? Never, I ne- yeah, he came back and I never said anything. Jesus. Yeah. And I was uh, – to this day, I'm like, wow, that's really pathetic. Mm. And I had so much anger because – I'd never stood up for myself. And there was this moment. This was the moment I knew I needed therapy. I was in my early 20s and I was laying on my horn at an intersection in downtown Chicago, head out the window because people were crossing the street in front of me and the Mm -hmm. light was green and it was going on forever. And this guy, like out of a time machine from the 50s with a fedora (laughs) and the briefcase and the trench coat, like out of nowhere, his face is an inch from mine. And with a, a, a look of disbelief and pity mm-hmm. says, son, get a hold of yourself. <sighs> and then he just turned and left. And it was, was like, he real? It's like somebody shook me away. Yeah. And that's when I went and started to get therapy. I didn't. Yeah, that's so interesting. Sometimes we don't know how angry. Right. We are. Right. You know, well, right. maybe we'll couch it in a hostile joke or be sarcastic, but. You know, that, that shit's got to be dealt with. Yeah. Otherwise, it just corrodes our life. Yeah. I mean, I remember one time I said on a podcast and someone like took umbrage with it, but I said, people are either aggressive or passive aggressive. And now I would change that to like, you're either 
communicating or it's coming out in some sideways direction, yes. Yes. but it's never actually pushed down all right. the way. It's leaking right. out somewhere. Right. And, the, and, and the way it could be coming out is in self-hatred. Mm-hmm. Some people turn yeah. it inwards and I've heard people say depression is anger turned inwards. Yeah, I've heard that too. Um, you know, I've heard that anger is an expression of sadness. I think I've heard that. And I know think sometime and I, and I've, this is not across the board and it's not like in the DSM it says that this is a social media thing. But I, for me, sadness is often an expression of anger because I'm so uncomfortable with anger and I hate the feeling of it and I hate it when it's around me and it just scares me. So if so, if there's something I'm actually angry about, I will often feel sad until I realize what's happening. That makes sense to me because if you feel like you can't speak up about certain things, yeah, of course you're going to feel sad. Right. Because you yeah. just feel like trapped yeah. in a prison of life, man. The, for for me, the thing that's almost always underneath anger is fear, mm. is, is I'm scared. And that's one of the things that's helped me in my support groups is to list the things I'm afraid of. And we do that on the podcast yeah. sometimes fear too. Fear off, right? Fear off, yeah. We haven't done those in a while. Got to do those again. Um, but getting in touch with those has really helped me mm-hmm. with my my anger because when I get angry, then I think, what am I afraid of? It's either I'm afraid something is going to happen or I recognize something in someone that I don't like about myself and I don't want to admit. Mm-hmm. And if I just can pause long enough to consider those two things, 99% of the time, the anger, if it doesn't go away, it dissipates. Yeah. That And that to me has been a huge, huge tool. So mental illness happy hour. Yes, ma'am. Um, 12 years. 12 years. Do you do stand-up still? Sometimes I do uh, my uh, character, uh, Richard Martin uh-huh. character, but I, I quit doing straight stand-up, I don't know, maybe 2012, 2013, mm-hmm. something like that. How come? Uh, just uh, the traveling and the babysitting drunks at the midnight shows on <laughs> yeah. Fridays. And, and I just really loved doing the satire of this you know, super right wing character is just is so fun to yeah. do. It's just a different form of of writing, and it's kind of my picket sign about mm-hmm. everything I think is wrong, <laughs> right, in, in right. America. But I, I haven't been on stage doing him in I don't know a couple couple of months. Mm-hmm. And then, so you hosted dinner and a movie. I did for years and years. I did. I did twenty or uh, nineteen ninety five to twenty eleven. Do you miss it? I miss the people. Mm-hmm. Um, I the show was really kind of uh, declawed by by the end. It when we first started off, our screen time was about eight minutes. You know, it was about two minutes a segment, maybe four or five segments throughout the show. Mm-hmm. By the end, we had about twenty seconds. Oh boy! To do things, the rest was advertising, and. Nothing remotely edgy could be done if we were holding a product in that segment. So right. the advertisers had say over what they wanted to censor or mm-hmm. not. So it was just a paycheck by the end. But I loved the people I worked with. And how did that them. job come about? Audition. And I almost didn't go to the callback because I was tired of all the rejection. I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to be a writer. Mm. And I was like, eh, just go to the callback, see what happens. But the fact that I didn't give a shit. 
I think freed yeah. me up to be myself. And I, it was Annabelle was my first co-host, and she was the one. Throwitch. And the yeah, she was the one in the callback, and I couldn't fucking stand her. <laughs> and so I just started making fun of her, uh -huh. and I guess that was the thing that the focus group liked, right? And uh, but when I got the call to do the show, and they said it's with her, I need the money needed the money desperately and i thought i don't know if i can work with that woman and if you're listening to annabelle shout out love you we've since uh mended our ways but we were not uh compatible but that's what they liked they why liked did that you rub. did you know her before the auditions no so you just instant you just disliked instantly, her from instantly disliked her what i thought was she it? was pretentious and i think she thought i was uh arrogant and naive uh-huh which is an interesting combination yeah. but i th i think she was right that's so interesting. I didn't have the tools to have conversations with people, so I would just get passive-aggressive, and my sense of humor would get mm -hmm. very mean, um, and I could cut people at the knees, kind of like my mom. Yeah. You know, who knew? Who knew? But so is that the – because I – I've seen some dinner or movie, but I haven't seen you. And I think I've seen Janet was one of them. Yep, right? she I think was. I've seen you um, and Janet. She was the third female co-host. It, it was uh, Annabelle Gerwich, then Lisa Kuchel. Her last name is Arch now, mm -hmm. and uh, and then Janet Varney. Um. So the dynamic between you and Annabelle on air was this contentious, very contentious. Oh, I got. Is it and, on YouTube? I got to go find this. Uh, there's a little bit, but I just got access to um, a ton. I, I found these. Uh, DVDs mm -hmm. that they would send us after every shoot, and I don't know. I've Did probably you find got hundred shows. Work bag. <laughs> yeah, and so they're in the process of being digitized. Oh, that's cool. And I've been looking through some of them, and there was some funny shit in there. Yeah, yeah there was some stuff I'm really, pr really proud of. But we we laughed a lot, and we we had a good time. But it was also a lot of pressure, even though it was this little show on on cable. We it was improvised. Mm -hmm. So we wrote it as we shot it, which if you're a narcissist <laughs> with low self-esteem like I am, you're like, oh, that mistake I made is going to be viewed by a million people mm -hmm. on Friday and everybody's going to think I'm a hack. Yeah. So then I'm bringing that energy to this ad. Right. And subjecting other people to that. Right. Right. Fun. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> what a fun guy to work yes. with. Yes. Um. Do you consider yourself a narcissist? I think I definitely have narcissistic qualities and, and that I think is is a quality in all addicts where they're whether they're treated or untreated. Mm -hmm. I just think it diminishes. I, f I feel like it's an it's an ember mm -hmm. in me, but when I feel threatened, I think it can it can kind of get right. get bigger. Um this has been illuminating and delightful. I love talking to you. You're so easy uh, to to talk to. Thank you. Do you happen to have a just me or everyone? Uh, yes. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Uh, is it just me? Or everyone that when you walk into like a little homemade kind of shop that somebody has where you walk in and you realize, oh, I don't want anything in here that on your way out, you walk extra slow so they don't think you stole something. Oh, interesting. I thought you were going to say you still look around to make it look like you might buy something. I do that as well. Yeah. Like, like this isn't total garbage. Right. 
Right. Um, oh, that's fascinating. I don't, I don't do that. I don't do the, um, walking. I don't, I don't worry that they think I've stolen something. Uh, but I definitely do like, Oh, little wicker knickknacks. Well, maybe mm-hmm. I want one of them. God, I guess I'll come back some other time. You know, right. I definitely pretend I'm that I need to look around. the The second you mentioned that kind of story, though, I could hear the chimes on the door. Oh, and I, I felt, did too. Yeah, I did too. And I felt I already felt like I broke something because mm-hmm. they're small. These yes. stores, yeah. And here's the the uh, can I do too? Please. Uh, when you see an old couple together, you picture them fucking. Oh. <laughs> That's probably just me. It can't be just you. Yeah. It can't be just you. Well, I do that with any couple. Yeah. But to me, it doesn't end right. at any Well, I think it doesn't, age. I mean. Yes. Because you hear about like the, you know, STDs going around the nursing home and stuff. Really? Mm-hmm. It's a thing. I have no idea. Yeah, it's I a thing. no idea. Yeah. Um, I don't know when the last time I heard a news story about that was, but like apparently just off the charts. They're really? banging. Yeah. Wow. I know. Um, that can't, <laughs> that can't be just you. That's not yeah. just you. Um, okay. A- announcement for listeners. I used to take listener, just me or everyone's on Twitter. I would say tweet your just me or everyone's to at ARIYNBF. I still do. However, I feel like Twitter, which is now X or whatever, not, it's just that the place has changed. So I am now taking them. If you're on Instagram, Follow me on Instagram at Allison Rosen. And there's a highlight on my profile. It says JMOE. Click that. And there's like a little box to submit. You're just mirror everyone there because people sometimes direct message them to me and then I lose them. So send it there. And then, Paul, do you have a hey, go fuck yourself? Uh, I would say people that have more than way more money than they need uh, who still choose to work ridiculous hours and don't spend any quality time with their kids. Yes. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. Yes. And tell themselves that they're doing this for their family. Mm-hmm. Now, how are we defining way more money than they actually need? You know, $10 million a year, you know, where they have enough money that they can send their kids to college. Their cars are running okay. They live in a nice neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They can go on vacation. Right. They have health insurance, you know, can save for their retirement. Yeah. And they, you know, they maybe they got three homes. That that to me is right. when, it, you know, when you see somebody. Oh, yeah. That's, and, and on top of it, and this is especially CEOs that are actively fucking over people and giving themselves huge pay packages. Yeah. Um, it's so rampant. But- to 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 try to release my anger, mm-hmm. we were talking about earlier. I just try to remember they're probably an addict just like me, but their addiction is money or power or, or prestige or yeah. work. Yeah, and you know their wreckage just happens to be a little larger than mine is, but it doesn't make me a better person mm-hmm. than they are. But it, that is still makes me angry. That's compassion. Sometimes I wish I was a workaholic. I wish I was one because, like you and me both, I am not you know, an ambition monster. Like I'm ambitious, but it's really, it's really been tempered in many years. Like I am so cool with taking a nap and like doing the bare minimum. That's awesome. It is. I guess. Thank you. (laughs) Because you have a better chance of being present with your kids. As long as you're, you're paying your bills, Mm -hmm. you're not 
scrambling, you know, you're meeting your obligations and being responsible. You know, we live in a culture, uh, the cult of more. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you look at, you know, not sorry to be that guy, but if you look at Europe, (laughs) but honestly, they have like limits on how many hours you can work a week. They get 12 weeks a year vacation. You know, I think I had one day off, three days off maybe this year. Right. Or, I, you know, as part of a, taking a week off mm-hmm. and not doing a new episode. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, I've never not put out. Have, wait, have you Have you ever done that? I did. I used to until this year when finances got tough. Uh, I would take off July and December and I felt fucking great. And then were you releasing? Best of. I see. Episodes. Yes. yes. And okay, it felt great, I mean. yeah. but also listenership would drop off mm. when I would do that. So yeah. kind of that and the finances, I'm like. I think we're going to go a couple more years without a a, a week off yeah. now. So. Yeah. Yeah. I've never not released an episode because like some, I think what childish we did, we're just like, we'll be back, you know, on this mm-hmm. date um, around the holidays. I don't know. I don't know what the fear is. I guess the, the fear would be that everyone, every single listener is like, well, uh, we're listening we're to this done. other podcast now. <laughs> Which isn't entirely unrealistic. It is isn't <clears throat> but i don't think it's i think it was more realistic way back when right like i think that well i don't know this is an interesting question but way back when it's like you have got to be consistent with your releases oh absolutely and i i think it's important but i don't i don't know how many listeners listen right when an episode drops right. although actually a fair amount do i think as long as you're giving them something yeah. Every week, even if it's a repeat episode, you just let them know you're you're still right. You're still there because right. there's podcasts where I don't listen for three weeks and then I don't listen for three years because mm-hmm. I just you I fall don't know. off. Yeah, it's like going to the gym or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do you still do woodworking? I do, and I'm back into it. And um, and that might be one of the things that I'm going to start doing is selling. Oh, cool! Uh, selling uh, some of my furniture. So I'm kind of excited. I'm teaching a friend woodworking and that was what got me back in the in the shop because I, I like being able to socialize when, right. I'm, when I'm in there. Nice. And I love teaching. Well, Paul Gilmartin, tell Rosen. everyone where they can find you, plug your things. Uh, the, the podcast is called The Mental Illness Happy Hour. The website is mentholpod.com and mentholpod is all the social media handles you can, you can follow us at. Wonderful. Um, and follow me on social media at Allison Rosen on Twitter and Instagram. I'm the Allison Rosen on TikTok. And I have recently started TikToking a little more than bringing you guys into the bathroom when I'm washing my face. I mean, I'm making it's compelling content. That that sounds riveting. It you have no idea. I mean, sometimes I take off my makeup with a cleansing balm. Sometimes I use micellar water. It you just you don't know what to expect. Good lord, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> really uh you know i'm like one of those gen z people just doing my tiktoks um yes uh and then i'm on patreon patreon.com slash allison rosen please go there support paul you're also on patreon i am i am uh patreon uh slash mental pod great yeah and could definitely use some donations i just walked away from a source of income that was 
half half my income. So I'm trying to find ways to to make up for that. Yeah. If you're not subscribed to both of us, rectify that. What are you doing? Yeah. You're going to be next week's go fuck yourself. That's right. Do you want to be that? You it's don't want to you. be that. You don't want to be that. Just yeah. me or everyone. I don't want to be next week's go fuck yourself. Uh, and then also follow me, subscribe on YouTube, youtube.com slash Allison Rosen. <sighs> I think we did it. This so been, so nice to see you again. So good to see you too. And if you got anything nutty you want to talk about, let's get you back on uh, my podcast. I mean, my dad died in July. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Was that harsh? I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So I feel like, I feel like, you know, now I've got new fodder. Mm-hmm. So let's figure it out. Okay. All right. We'll talk. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. You matter. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time.